0: Last week, if you weren't around, we uh, did something new to Crossview. And uh, Chris taught on baptism. Then we had an experience that is called the affirmation of baptism, which many traditions do. The covenant tradition has it in our book of worship as well. And uh, I was thinking about uh, it as I was gone. And it's one of those experiences I really missed. I've done it the last six or seven years at the church I was at. And um, communion we get consistently. Baptism is something we forget it's significance. So if you were baptized as a child and God's covenant love was put on you even before you could choose God, the affirmation of baptism reminds you of how amazing God's love is. Hard to understand. And if you were baptized as a believer affirmation of baptism is a chance for you to remember when you said publicly via being dipped into water that you are now a follower of Jesus. So it's a tradition that we will sort of take part in each year and it's it's a chance to remember. One of the sacraments that many if most have uh uh, Participated in, and remember its significance. So we are jumping into a new series that we're calling Blessed. And I've heard a little bit of chatter, excitement that we're going to cover the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, let me deflate your bubble real quickly. We're not going to cover the whole Sermon on the Mount. We're going to spend five weeks just in the first 16 verses. And my hope and prayer over the next number of years is that we'll keep coming back to this sermon. Many would say this is the greatest sermon priest of all time. And you might say, then why, Brad, are you preaching on it? It's in the Bible, so we got to, um, and it gives us the core heart content reality of what Jesus is about. So we're going to have a lot of fun and to an overview this week, and we'll spend the next four weeks after this in it. <clears throat> Before we do that, let me talk a little bit, and this, this is good for if you've been in the church a long time or if you're new to the church. I think in general, as we approach the Bible, we tend to read it in two ways. One of the ways we read the Bible is devotionally. I think if you are a follower of Jesus or you're trying to figure out the Jesus following thing, one of the ways in which you and I should on a consistent basis read the Bible is we should open it up and, and believe that God wants to speak to us. Um, believe that there's a living God who through his word wants to connect with us. We don't have to interpret anything. We just we really believe that this is one of the ways that God communicates with us, Right? The other way in which we read the Bible, and this is part of what we do on Sunday mornings, you probably do it in a small group, is we want to interpret it. We want to understand what the text is saying so that we can live faithfully as the church today. And that's what when we the reason I'm saying this when we come to a text like the Sermon on the Mount, which has often been treated poorly. Because we don't interpret it well. So when we interpret the Bible, some of the things that we do is we try and understand the world of the Bible, the history of the first century, what was going on. We look at the words and what did they mean. We look at where it fits in God's story, in the Bible. All these things that you learn in literature, we actually apply to the Bible. Because we believe that we are called to be faithfully God's people making a difference in the world today. And that's why we approach the word and get into the word. And with that said, if you have your Bibles, Matthew chapter 5. And let me give you a little bit of the context. What's going on? Because if we're going to understand the Sermon on the Mount, we need to understand what was going on before this. And so if we go immediately right before, in chapter 4, verse 18, it says this. As Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and his brother Andrew. They were casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. And here's what Jesus says. Come and follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. And at once they left their nets and followed him. Um, I don't know about you. Some of these passages, you read them and you think you stop for one second, you're like, wait a sec. They left their job to follow Jesus. That that's a big deal. They left what they were about, what they were doing, what they were following, to actually follow Jesus in the first century. The world of the first century is really interesting. You had all different types of of people in first century Judaism. You had uh, groups like the Pharisees. What the Pharisees, their whole understanding of what life with God meant and when a Messiah, when a deliverer had come, the Pharisees, what their belief was, if all of Israel would simply obey the 500 plus laws perfectly, then the Messiah will come. That's what the Pharisees thought. So their job was what? Help people obey the law. Then you had Sadducees. You've heard these words before. Sadducees were the first century religious elite. They had the money. They were actually in power and government. Remember, Rome was in charge. But the Sadducees had places of control, places of power. And their approach to this whole Judaism faith thing was, let's just make be. Don't make waves. We're doing okay. In fact, some of us are doing really well. So don't make waves. Then you've heard of groups like the Zealots. The zealots are, and some would say maybe some of Jesus' disciples were part of the zealots. The zealots said, the way that we are going to be delivered from Roman oppression, the Messiah is going to come, is we're going to take the sword we're going to kick some rear. We are going to fight. We will bring the Messiah in because we will defeat Rome. And then you had another group called the Essenes. The Essenes had, had withdrawn They simply said, there's no chance, there's no hope. We are going to remove ourselves from the society. Society's gotten too bad, and they just hit the road. Those are the main groups of Judaism in the first century. There's one more that I would say, and it's just the common person. The reason I'm telling you this is because Jesus is going to teach to a multitude. He's going to teach to a group of people that included all of these. Average Jews, Pharisees, Sadducees, wondering what this guy was up to. Zealots hoping that he was gonna take the sword and lead them to victory. Essenes, sort of pacifists, right? Like, yeah, let's just, I hope he just tells everybody to withdraw. Let's if we all hang out at the Dead Sea, we're gonna have a lot of fun laying on our backs in the salted water. So that's who Jesus is talking to when he says, Come and follow me, they have to turn from what they're following. What worldview, what understanding, what way of thinking. And then here's what he goes on to teach in verse 23. Jesus went through Galilee, and this is in the northern part of Israel, through Galilee in their synagogues preaching the good news of the kingdom. Friends, we need to understand this. The thing Jesus talked about more than anything else is the kingdom of God. Remember, after Jesus is risen from the dead, the beginning of Acts, the very last thing he talks to his disciples about before they start the church is the kingdom of God. It's important. We need to get a better and better, a more clear and a more clear understanding of what it looks like to trust Jesus, to follow Jesus, and to live in his kingdom. One of my favorite thinkers, Dallas Willard, who passed away this last year, that's how he defines the gospel. It's trusting Jesus, which means I have to turn away from everything else I'm trusting, right? If I'm going to trust Jesus, I can't trust me. I can't trust power. I can't trust wealth. I can't trust... I've got to trust Jesus. Jesus. That what he says, what he offers is actually true. And then we live in, we believe that the kingdom of God is actually a reality now. That's what Jesus is going to talk about as we get to the Sermon on the Mount. So if you have your Bibles, Matthew 5, this will be up on the screen as well. Let's read down through it one time and then come back to it. Matthew 5, verses 1 through 16. Now when he saw the crowds, he went up on the mountainside and sat down. They're probably around the Sea of Galilee. His disciples came to him and he began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me Rejoice, I mean, what a great selling point to be part of this thing. People are going to just do nasty things to you, and here's your follow-up. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Verse 13, after all that said, you, look in the crowd, you are the salt of the earth, but if salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown away and trampled by men. Verse 14, you are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden, neither neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put on a stand so it can give light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before men, that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. Before we get into the word a little more, let me pray. Jesus, take your word. Take your word as it points to you, the living God, and I pray that you would work in our lives, God. Teach us what it means to trust and follow you and how we can live fully in your kingdom now. I pray this in your name. Amen. So this passage you have heard time and time again, and the it challenge is it's often been mistreated. There's this word that said time and time and time again, blessed. It's from this Greek word, Makarios. And often what people think this means is one of two things. One, they'll they'll approach the text and say, okay, I've got to become all these peoples if I am really going to experience the full life that God has to offer me. So we say, what does it look like to be poor in spirit? What does it look like to be meek? What does it look like to hunger and thirst for righteousness? And the church has often approached this passage this way. And the challenge is, it is a lesson in futility. You will never fully achieve what this text says. Others have taught... That the Sermon on the Mount, especially the Beatitudes, the first few verses here, are about some life out there that we will have someday. Like This is so intense. It's so good. We can't experience it now. It must be for something at another day, at another time. We can't experience it now. And I love what, what David Lowe says about this. He says, there's a trap hidden in Beatitudes that I know I have fallen into countless times. And perhaps you have too. The trap is as simple as it is subtle believing that Jesus is setting up conditions of blessing rather than actually blessing the hearers themselves. Believing that there's conditions if we're going to get God's blessing rather than saying this is an actual message preached to actual people on an actual hillside and what was he saying to them? Because he was saying something to them and if we can get it, we can understand a little bit more fully what this kingdom of God reality is all about. And here's what's intriguing. This is, I mean, I I was not a a really good English guy growing up, so this this is probably normally beyond what I know, but all the blesseds are in in the indicative mood. All the blesseds in Matthew chapter 5 are in the indicative mood. And if you remember English and grammar and literature and all that, that means it's what is. Jesus is saying, What is true in the current reality as he's preaching a message, looking out at actual people on an actual hillside, that these would probably, most likely, be people who he is looking at. And as he looks them in the eye, as he teaches this, as he's teaching more about the kingdom of God, he is calling blessed certain people. He is giving good news to certain people. So who are those people? I'm going to give a little overview because we're going to get more into these in the next few weeks. But let me give you a little overview. If Jesus is saying what is true, if he's blessing actual people sitting around, and what if those actual people are many of us here today, then who are the actual people? Who are they? So here's the poor in spirit. The poor in spirit are people that find no reason for hope in life. The Greek word actually has financial implications to it that these are perhaps people sitting in the crowd that Jesus is preaching to who are at the end of their rope they've lost their house everything is gone they've been looking for a job for a year and a half and Jesus looks them in the eye and says you're blessed In my kingdom it looks a little different than the mourners it's simply those who find no cause for joy and one of the things I know that when we gather on Sunday morning, I don't care how good we look, there are people in this room that are mourners, that you've experienced some horrible tragedy in the last week, two weeks, month, that has left you completely in the place where you cannot find joy. And I think of this crowd in the first century as Jesus looks out at actual people and he looks at the person who's mourning can't find joy they're looking for and he says, I've got good news for you. Then the meek. The meek, this word can have this positive sense of humble or gentle. But I I think in the negative sense, we actually get at it a little better. It's about the humiliated. The people who are walked on, the doormats, the powerless. That as he looks at the crowd, those people in our society who everybody else tramples on. They're in an abusive marriage. They sleep in a box. They don't have anything and everybody else puts them to the edge of society. Then Jesus looks them in the eye and says, not in my kingdom. Not in my kingdom. Then you have the hungering and thirsting for righteousness. And these images, I think it's so important, the hungering and the thirsting, they not only depict this desire for something, but it's about deprivation. You know when you're so thirsty that all you want is just a drip of water on your tongue? These are people who want that for righteousness. That They look around for justice and they see it nowhere. Nowhere in their own lives, nowhere around them. They just can't get a glimpse of it and they want it. And Jesus looks them in the eye and says, Things are going to be different in my kingdom. You might actually be blessed. And then there's the Merciful. This is a challenging word, but the, the merciful are sort of the healers, the people who see something that's gone wrong and, and they do all in their power to put it to right. And if you're one of those people, it can be hard, right? You work for a certain justice issue. You work to make something right. And every time you take one step forward, it feels like you just took 25 steps back. And Jesus looks you in the eye, and he looks that person in the eye in the first century and says, You're blessed. The one step forward matters. In my kingdom, it's a little different. And then the pure in heart. The pure in heart are those people who uh, not not on the outside look good, but these are people who are on the inside really are pursuing the life with God. And you know who you are. You know who you are. And Jesus saw him in the crowd. They maybe didn't look the best, but their inner life with God, their pursuit of the living God was so good. And Jesus says, you're blessed. You're blessed. Then the peacemakers. These are agents of God who are working to establish shalom, peace, when God makes all things right, when there will be no more tears, no more crying, no more pain, when heaven actually comes down and invades earth and things are right and good and God is king. These are the people who work for that. And similar to some of the others, they get a taste of it. They maybe get a glimpse of it. They maybe actually did something that happened that moved towards it. But it's hard work. I know people in this room, you work to bring peace in certain areas, and it is hard. In your marriage, in areas of justice, and you're worn out and you're tired, and Jesus looks at you, and it looks like he looked at people in the first century, and he says, You're blessed. My kingdom looks a little different. God's kingdom, these people actually have a place. But I think we have to be clear on this and pay attention to the fact that Matthew is completely clear that he's not setting up conditions for being blessed. That is not the point of this text. But he's blessing people. All kinds of people, all kinds of down and out, extremely vulnerable, bottom of the ladder people. And he's doing this because in the first century and now, he's trying to help us see where God actually shows up, where the living God revealed in Jesus Christ actually shows up. He often shows up with the poor rather than the rich, he tends to be with the mourning rather than the celebrating. He hangs out with the meek and the peacemakers, rather than just the strong and victorious. And in the ancient world, this kind of kingdom didn't make sense, just like it doesn't today, right? It doesn't make sense. Let me give you a couple of things that I think are so important for us to take away. One is this. The Beatitudes, Matthew 5, tell us a little bit more about God's kingdom. If Jesus talked about it over a hundred times, if it's the last thing that he talked about before he ascended to be with the Father, I think we need to spend time trying to get at what it's about, right? So it gives us a little more understanding about what the kingdom is. I was with some friends a while ago and I, these are just buddies of mine. They're not pastor types. And I said, what's one of the most challenging things about the church to understand what, what, what do you really struggle with? And they said, the kingdom of God. So that's a great. I mean, that is a great answer. It's it's hard language for us to understand. Like kingdom language doesn't make sense. God is king, God in charge. What does that mean, and how does it relate to trusting God? And I think that's such a good point. But I think our call is to learn more and more and more about what the kingdom of God is, so that we can submit our life under that reign. If you've done that, if you're in the process of doing that, you know how good it is. Not easy. Good. And in that process, not just learning, but submitting, we begin to get more and more and more of what this kingdom is actually about. This kingdom is a little bit on the upside-down side of things. Blessed are the people that we normally wouldn't choose first at recess for our kickball team. Like, Jesus didn't get it right. He chose the kid that couldn't get it out of the infield First. Doesn't make sense. Not only did he cho- choose him, he said, You are the star. And for some of us in this room, that's exactly what we need to hear. When I went down through that list, I know that a lot of you heard yourself in that list. You're mourning, you're broken, you're poor in spirit. And you needed to hear that there's a loving God who says to you, I love you. I want you in my kingdom. And then for others of us, let's be really honest, because I I think I sit in this seat often. For others of us, this isn't good news. Because the kingdom I want to build is not look like this. This is not building a kingdom 101, Jesus. It doesn't make sense. You're choosing the wrong people. You're including the wrong people. It's about having the right leaders, the powerful, the the smart, the educated. And you're including them? And the challenge is, the very them we point at is us. Right? We're the poor in spirit. We're the broken, the downtrodden. And God includes us. Second thing is this, I think Matthew 5, just like the teachings of Jesus again and again and again, call us to kingdom faithfulness. And if you are new to the church and wondering about one, one, of, the, one of the tensions that I love in Scripture that is so important for us to understand is there's, there's this now, not yet. Like we believe, we, we stake our hope as followers of Jesus that one day, Revelation tells that one day God will come down and make things right again. There will be no more tears, no more crying, no more pain, no more death. That's what we put our hope in. That's what we believe in. But the reality when we live in the here and now, it's not here yet, is it? We get a glimpse of it. We see it. We're part of it. We, 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 we can almost grab it at times. I think one of the beautiful tensions of Jesus around the kingdom is this, is this now, not yet. We believe in it. We hope for it. It's the dream of the future that will happen. But it's not totally reality yet. Like, my marriage isn't totally repaired. We're about ready to lose our house. God doesn't seem to be listening to me. And the now, not yet tension is, On some levels, you're exactly right. But God wants to be fully present and says, in my kingdom, you're included. I'm not saying it's going to be easy. You may still lose the house. But in my kingdom, you are loved. You are valued. You are believed in. And one day, things will be different. I'm going to reread the text in a different translation that I think Gets at the heart of it. Matthew chapter 5, 1 through 16. And this is from the Kingdom New Testament. I I love, I love how the the wording is when we get down to the Beatitudes. When Jesus saw the crowds, he went up the hillside and sat down. His disciples came to him. He took a deep breath and began his teaching. Wonderful news. That gets Makarios. Wonderful news. for The poor in spirit. The kingdom of heaven is yours. Wonderful news for the mourners, for you are going to be comforted. Wonderful news for the meek, you're going to inherit the earth. Wonderful news for people who hunger and thirst for God's justice. You're going to be satisfied one day. Trust me. Wonderful news for the merciful, you'll receive mercy yourselves. Wonderful news for the pure in heart, you will see God. Wonderful news for the peacemakers, you will be called God's children. Wonderful news for God's people who are persecuted because God's because of God's way, the kingdom of heaven belongs to you. Wonderful news for you. When people slander you and persecute you and say all kinds of wicked things about you falsely because of me. Celebrate and rejoice. There's a great reward for you in heaven. That's how they persecuted the prophets who went before you. It's funny, in the first few centuries when Christians were being martyred, they're often called, they were receiving makarios. They're receiving blessing. And maybe in that horrid act of dying for God, there was wonderful news. Verse 13, you're the salt of the earth, but the salt loses its taste, becomes tasteless. How is it going to get salty again? It's no good for anything. You might as well throw it out and walk all over it. You're The light of the world. And I think we're going to get to this, but it's so important to understand light of the world coming off those first 14 verses. If you get the Beatitudes, if you get the wonderful news that this passage is talking about, then you're the light of the world. City cannot be hidden. It's on the top of the hill. People don't light a lamp and put it under a bucket. They put it on a lampstand. Then it gives light to everything in the house. That's how you must shine your light in front of people. They will see wonderful things you do and they'll give glory to your Father in heaven. If we get it, we are light. We actually become the very blessing to the world and people around us that Abraham was called to be in Genesis 12. I'm going to bless you and you'll be a blessing to who? All people. All people. It's funny, I would encourage you. I mean, I've been trying to sit a little bit with uh, the holiday tomorrow, Martin Luther King. I think in some ways, no matter what you think about MLK, how perfect or imperfect, just like all of us, get a glimpse of what it maybe would be to do this type of work, to say wonderful news to people who generally are left on the outs And as you sit here this morning, I know that some of you, and please hear from us, you can receive wonderful news by simply trusting and following Jesus. God, we give this text to you, especially as we sit in the next couple of weeks. We pray that you, through your spirit, would do your good work. And Lord, that we would become more and more like your son, Jesus Christ. So that we can be to those around us and to the world exactly who you call us to be. I pray this in your name. Amen.